We thank you, our Father, that you are God and that you're in charge, that you oversee this world. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. His throne is in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. We are mindful of that because we're living in such turbulent and uh, tumultuous and uh, ridiculous times. And we see men with their agendas and with their plans and with their deals and their uh, bargaining in their back room this or that or and we see truth being ignored we see law being ignored we're kind of astonished by everything that we're watching so we are grateful that men are in reality although they have positions of authority that they're not actually in charge. Um, you're in charge. You're overseeing all things. You have a plan for each of us. The psalmist said, my times are in your hands. And in Psalm 138, it says, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. Philippians 1, six: he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, we'll have a fear that we're missing something or the fear of missing out or that we're going to not embrace or receive everything that we should in life, but the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. You're in charge. So as we live in these days, we want to be mindful that you are God, that you are Lord, that you are Savior, that you're Redeemer, that you're good, that you're holy, that you have a plan and a purpose for the ages and for each of our lives, for our families, for our children and our grandchildren. How grateful we are that we have your word, and it is a sure word, we're walking in days where there are many voices that offer their wisdom, but the scriptures give us your wisdom. We have all these people with titles and all these people with positions, and they're high, but you are God who is most high. So we look to you. We ask for your wisdom tonight. Give every man that which he needs. You know our hearts. Direct us in the path and the way that we should go. Help us to listen to you and not resist you. It's the wisest way to live. Teach us now as we open your word by your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight, and we have two more studies after tonight that will finish up this semester in Second Peter. It's hard to believe we just have two left. 
And then that brings us right up the week before Thanksgiving. So it's moving quickly. We'll be in Second uh, Peter chapter 2 tonight, as we have been for the last several weeks, but tonight we're going to finish it up. As you know, it's a chapter um, <clears throat> that we've said is pretty gnarly. It's pretty aggressive. It's, um, it, it, it's, it's not gentle. It's not genteel. It's not <clears throat> nice. It's not Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's an expose of false teachers and false prophets. And it's real blunt, and it's to the point, exposes the dangers um, that can affect someone for eternity if, they, if, if the false teachers and false prophets are listened to. Uh, Peter is at the end of his life, as he tells us in chapter 1. So he is writing before he dies so that we would remember certain truths. And one of the main truths is to look out for false teachers because they can do incredible damage. And so that's what chapter two basically is all about. And we're gonna finish up chapter two tonight by giving five final facts about false teachers. Five final facts about false teachers. Let's go ahead and read the text. We'll be in Second Peter chapter two and we're going to just pick it up in midstream in verse 17 all the way down to 22. Now, he's referring here to the false prophets. All right? These are springs without water, these false prophets, and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. Well, little Bible reading before you go to sleep at night. Huh? Pretty gnarly stuff. Pretty, it's a head-on collision. It's, it's exposing the liars. It's exposing uh, the devil's agents that infiltrate the church and seek to destroy and seek to steal and murder we're going to look at uh, five facts. Let me go ahead and give you the facts, and we'll come back and we'll roll through them. Number one, false prophets are wolves. False prophets are wolves. We'll come back to it. Number two, false prophets are empty. They're empty. Three, false prophets are doomed. 
That's verse 17, and the previous point is verse 17. Number four, false prophets promise freedom while they themselves are enslaved. They promise freedom while they themselves are enslaved. Verses 18 and 19 would cover that. Number five, false prophets were never saved. False prophets were never saved, even though they looked like they were. Verses 20 and 22. So let's go back to the first fact about false prophets. False prophets are wolves. Now, this particular section of Scripture does not refer to them as wolves, but in many other passages of Scripture, they are referred to as wolves, uh, which is significant because there, there are two metaphors that are often used. Uh, God's people are called sheep. In, in Psalm 100, verse 3, it says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. That makes us sheep. So that metaphor of a sheep, um, of a lamb, is used um, well over 100 times in, in Scripture. The natural enemy of a sheep is a wolf. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7. This, we're going to look at some passages, and some we've looked at earlier in this study, but these all deal with false prophets. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Jesus said this in 7:15: Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So the thing about these false prophets, and it's the same thing that Peter is saying, is that they look like they're one of us. They look like they're believers. They look like they're committed to Christ. They look like they're committed to the scriptures, but they're not. They're absolutely counterfeit. They are frauds. They do the work of Satan and not the work of Christ. They seek to lead people away from Christ and into sin. Um, and then Jesus goes on and says, you'll know them by their fruits. That's how you'll recognize them. And so the more, the more they are around and the more you're around a false prophet, even though at first they just look like they're, man, I mean, they're a committed believer, committed follower of Christ. The more you're around someone who's a false prophet, Prophet, and the more you know the scripture, the more your antenna goes up. And the more you recognize something's askew here, something's amiss, something's not right. Something's not passing the smell test here. That's why we've got to be in the scriptures. The more you know the scriptures, the more you're going to recognize the counterfeit. Jesus basically is saying you're going to know them by their fruit. He says that in verse 20, so then you will know them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We kind of think everyone who says, Lord, Lord, and who has a Bible with their name imprinted on gold, um, they're going to heaven. They're not. And we're always shocked when someone is exposed who we thought was genuine. 
But we shouldn't be shocked because the scripture time and time and time again warns us about these false prophets in the church who are stealth. They look just like sheep. They dress like sheep, they talk like sheep, they know all the hymns, they know all the verses to all the hymns. Some of them even write worship choruses. Not him, not her, yeah. So Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. The problem with the false prophets, they're not interested in doing the will of God, they're interested in doing the will of Satan. And by the way, um, I mean, this is something that we've got to watch like a hawk. We're going to go to John 10 in a minute and see this. Uh, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. They don't practice righteousness, they practice lawlessness. And the description that is in 2 Peter 2 of the false prophets is a description of lawlessness. Not the law of God, not the moral law of God. They are their own law unto themselves. Let's go over to uh, John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, we see Jesus, who is the great shepherd. And the metaphor of the shepherd and the sheep is all the way through John 10, John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd and who is not the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. Those who do not know the Lord yet but have been chosen to know the Lord and they will come in. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Um, Look at John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I mean, there you go. Are you a sheep? Are you following? See, the test is, are you following Christ? Everybody is following somebody. The question is, who are you following? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. There you go. There's the security of the sheep, the security of the believer in Christ. False prophets are wolves. Uh, Keep going to your right and you'll wind up in Acts and go to Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and you'll go to 
chapter 20. And in chapter 20, uh, Paul is basically saying goodbye to the uh, elders at the church at Ephesus. And he won't see them again. And he says in chapter 20, verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God or the whole counsel of God. I taught all the scriptures to you. False prophets pick and choose scriptures. They don't teach the whole counsel of God. They don't teach the entire Bible. They just pick certain things. They cherry pick and they ignore other things in order to uh, persuade away from truth. Scripture interprets scripture. Watch this, verse 28, Paul says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, all your sheep, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, here you go, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise. Why? Because false prophets are embedded. They're stealth. They're deep state. Speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He's basically saying the same thing Peter is. Don't forget these things. And Paul was beheaded in the same persecution that Peter was crucified in under the reign of Nero. False prophets are wolves. And they're among us. And, and I just find it very interesting. He made it crystal clear. They will show up from among yourselves. They're in the church. They're hidden. You don't know who they are. So we've got, we got to keep our eyes peeled. That's all. Um, second point. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 2. False prophets are empty. Empty. There are two metaphors used here. These are, these, these false prophets, verse 17, 2 Peter 2. These false prophets he's referring to are springs without water. If you ever read um, Louis L'Amour, if you ever read one, it's hard not to read another. My, my friend Stu Weber uh, had back surgery and he was down for two or three months. And someone gave him a Louis L'Amour book and then he read another one. He read them all, a hundred of them. And then he told me about them and I read one and I read them all more than once. I'll read them on a plane after I've been at a conference and I'm, I get nothing left. Uh, Tom Landry, win or lose after a Cowboys game away, would get on the plane and pull out a Louis L'Amour Western. Ronald Reagan would read a Louis. The guy was the greatest Western writer of all time. Uh, he just was, a tremendous writer. He, he'll, he, he, has, uh, he has a short story and then he has a novel about a guy and this guy had a rancher who hated him, and he'd been a hand who would work for the guy. And anyway, 
This rancher hated his guts because this guy had integrity. He wouldn't do what he asked him to do and take shortcuts. And So they tie him up. They take him out into the desert, miles and miles into the desert in the summer. And uh, they find this uh, deep, 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 deep ravine. And they throw him down there sort of like uh, Daniel in the lion's den. There's no lions, but the problem is there's no water. And they take his canteen, and uh, that's it. The guy's going to die in the desert. And one of the guys who feels bad about it drops his canteen off his horse, and the rancher sees it, and he says, you pick up that canteen or you're going in there with him. So uh, anyway... The whole rest of the story is about how this guy makes it back. And this guy knew how to live in the desert. And uh, he's almost dead. And he wakes up and he hears a bee buzzing. And according to Louis Moore, if there's a bee buzzing, there's water somewhere. And this guy finds water. And da 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 da. And then the guy eventually makes his way to the farmhouse. And guess who's the guard? The guy that dropped the canteen. And he says, are you going to shoot me? He says, no, I know you tried to help me. I'm just going to shoot the other guys. <laughs> Great Christian novel. <laughs> when you're in the desert, and see, the thing is, in this book, this guy knew there was a spring 18 miles away. But the thing was, would there be any water in it? And an old miner in passing, he knew past that spring there was another one 12 miles away because an old miner had told him about it one time. And see, when you make the trek 18 miles, the last thing you want to come up with is a spring without water. Because if it's a spring without water and you're in a desert, that's death. It's empty. False prophets are empty spiritually. They are misdriven by a storm. So we're seeing all these wildfires again in California and the Southern California wildfires actually uh, are fairly close to the ocean. Uh, the fire broke out just today, I think, in Simi Valley, which is real close to the ocean. Now, if you're a visitor, I, I was raised in California, but if you've never been to California, you're there for the first time and you're near the coast, what happens is you're excited and the sunshine and all this, and you wake up in the morning and it's foggy and it's overcast and you shoot. And it looks like it's gonna rain. But it's not gonna rain. Just wait till 11 a.m. because that fog, that mist, burns off on the coast. And then you'll have your sunshine. Uh, but you're not, you're not going to get rain. Rain is unusual. That's why everything's so dry. There are other reasons that I won't go into that I'd like to, but I won't. <laughs> we might even just edit that whole little thing. But I feel better having even said that. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But some of you do. Springs without water and mist driven by a storm. Uh, you see a mist, you see a 
a cloud, you think there's gonna be rain. But see, they're empty. They're utterly empty. That's what these false teachers are. They have nothing that is life-sustaining for you. Third thing he says is that false prophets are doomed. That's also in verse 17. It's in the same sentence. They are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. That is uh, eternal damnation. It's eternal darkness away from God. There's already a reservation. That is, uh, and, and it's what they have chosen and it's what they want. Um, let me show you something interesting. In, in 2 Thessalonians, if you... If you're in Second Peter and you go left, go over to Second Thessalonians chapter two. It's talking about, well, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come, that, that the Lord's already returned and they missed it. Uh, he goes on and says, let no one in any way deceive you. There have been some false prophets that have disturbed them. Uh, for it will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. There will be an antichrist. There will be a world leader that will stand up against God. Um, Verse 6, you know it restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The man of, uh, the, the Antichrist is a man of lawlessness who is in absolute opposition to the things of God. Uh, he, will, he will lead the final rebellion against God Almighty. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains him now will do so until he is taken out of the way. Um, then that lawless, one's, lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. This is the Antichrist. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Now watch this. For those who perish. Why did they perish? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Verse, next verse. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. That's wild stuff. You say, wait a minute. Why would he do that? Verse 12. In order that they all may, ju may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Uh, here's the thing. Th this corresponds with Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Even though they knew God, they did not acknowledge him as God. But they suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. What he's talking about is that people, you know the worst thing that God can ever do for you is to give you what you want. And the thing which these people want is they want to believe a lie and not believe the truth which they know to be true. And you'll read in Romans 1 that he gave them over. He gave them over. The worst thing that ever happened to you is for God to give you over to what you want. He's just giving them what they desire. That's not unjust. 
That's why we want to keep our hearts open to the truth. That's why we want to respond to truth. That's why we want to be open to truth. That's why we want to obey truth and obey the Lord. It's the best way to live. Jesus said I, in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He's hated for that. And if you believe that, and if you hold to that, you'll be hated. But it's the truth. Number four, you guys still with me? This is heavy stuff, isn't it? It's very heavy. False prophets promise freedom while they themselves are enslaved. False prophets promise freedom while they themselves are enslaved. I'm going to go back to 2 Peter 2, verses 18 and 19. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Sexual license is a big deal in their lives. Uh, away from the moral law of God, which he has taught. And I've said this before. There's one sexual relationship that God ordains and blesses, and that's the relationship, the intimate sexual relationship between a husband and wife, Period. That's it. Anything else is out of bounds. That's what God endorses. That kind of runs against the green a little bit, don't you think? Of where we are today? I mean. Speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires or sensuality those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Watch this promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Um, Tim Keller has written a book called Making Sense of God. Subtitle is An Invitation to the Skeptical. And... <clears throat> He's talking about our, our generation and those that would be, you know, you, you have the different terms. The common one is millennials, I guess those that are not quite 40, but close. And then that goes, goes down a number of years. Um, we, we have, uh, in, in his book, he talks about the fact we have these deconversion stories. Uh, you can find them on the internet, you can find them online, of young people that were raised in evangelical homes and went to evangelical schools and all of this. But they have testimonies of how they deconverted. And by walking away from the faith and by walking away from Christ, um, they have found freedom. That's the message. They found absolute freedom by walking away from what the Bible says and what the Bible teaches. Um, and Keller is working through this and trying to explain it. He has a chapter called Isn't Religion Based on Faith and Secularism on Evidence? It's a good chapter. 
the idea that to be a Christian is just to live by faith, but he points out and he makes it really clear and he makes the case that if you depart from Christianity and embrace anything else, you're living by faith. It, it's, it's not all just reason. Uh, although perhaps you can delude yourself into thinking you're, you're just extremely reasonable. There is always an element of faith and there are always other elements to people and their choices. And he has a section called background beliefs, how you were raised, what you experienced. Maybe you had a bad experience in the church or a bad experience with Christians or what you were taught in school. It's very tightly reasoned. And I would like to read all of this to you, but I won't. But I'll read one paragraph. Charles Taylor, who is a sociologist who has has written extensively on where we are in terms of our thinking in this culture, in this age. He says, Charles Taylor explains why modern people are far more likely to lose their faith over suffering than those in times past. So let's just stop here for a minute. So, so many who deconvert, they have a great, and it's a huge issue, is the problem of evil. How can, if God is good, how can he allow evil? Uh, there are horrible things that happen. And, and it's, a, it, it's, it's a legitimate question. It's a question that ought to be addressed. Here's another. How could a God of love actually send people to hell forever? How could he do that? I mean, these are difficult and hard questions that you've got to grapple with and you just can't ignore. And some, when they walk away from it, they have a great sense of freedom. I'm not going to deal with that anymore. But in order to get the freedom, they have to embrace something else that in some way, shape, or form is not going to be embraced just on sheer logic and reason. Someone said, the purpose of reason is to show us that there is a limit to reason. We can't understand everything. We just can't. Now, we can reason, but we have limited bandwidth. We can't take in everything. We can't comprehend. So back to the paragraph. I'll show you how it ties together. Charles Taylor explains why modern people are far more likely to lose their faith over suffering than those in times past. He says it is because culturally our belief and confidence in the powers of our own intellect has changed. Ancient people did not assume that the human mind had enough wisdom to sit in judgment on how an infinite God was disposing of things. It is only in modern times that we get the certainty that we have all the elements we need to carry out a trial of God. Only when this background belief in the sufficiency of our own reason shifted did the presence of evil in the world seem to be an argument against the existence of God. It wasn't in past generations. But it's sure a big one in our generation. Doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be addressed. It just means that it has greater weight because we have a generation 
that has greater faith in their own intellect than any other generation before it. There's a lot of hubris. There's a lot of pride. There's a lot of arrogance, which explains why, you see, usually in past generations, they would look to the, to the older to get wisdom. But this new generation tends not to look to the older, they look to those who have certain degrees from certain institutions because they think that is where wisdom is gained. And instead of learning from the wisdom of those who have lived for a number of years and have had experience and walk with God, they reject that because the wisdom of those with degrees from certain institution has more weight and more gravitas. It's a shift of thinking. And those people that they listen to tell them that what they were raised with, with the scriptures, they don't need to listen to, they can't even be trusted, and they are promised all kinds of freedom by those who are themselves enslaved. It was Paul Johnson who wrote a book called Intellectuals. And he took some of the greatest intellectuals over the last several centuries who have been trendsetters that are followed meticulously and taught their theories in universities. And then he delved into their private lives and showed how what they taught was absolutely utterly foreign to them in terms of how they lived. Rousseau, the great philosopher who was looked to as for his wisdom in raising children was in immoral relationships and every time a child was born in the dead of night he'd take the infant and he would drop it off at the front door of a convent and then abandon the child. But when he's a man of great wisdom. Um, we're living in interesting times. And this all comes from false teaching. And you have false teaching in the church, you have false prophets in the church, uh, who instead of teaching what the scripture says, they're saying, as we'll see in a minute, no, God's fine with this. Well, the Bible says that's wrong. You don't need to listen to that. God's okay with this. This is where we are now. Number five, these false prophets, these false teachers. Now remember, Jesus said they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like they're the real deal. They look like they're genuine. Uh, Paul warned about it to the <coughs> Ephesian elders. And he said these false teachers are going to rise up among you. So they look like they're genuine. They speak the vocabulary. They've got the goods. They've got the credentials. But you've got to test the spirits to see if they be of God. You've got to look at the fruit. You've got to have your antenna up. The Christian, the, 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 those at Berea were more noble than those at Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. We, when you hear something, you test it by the word of God. 
I check certain websites almost every day. Uh, one of them is the Gospel Coalition website. They, they have some excellent articles, studies, resources. Um, they had one recently called Nine Things You Should Know About the Bethel Church Movement. I talked last week about Bethel Church. Uh, Bethel, Ch Bethel Church out of Redding, California. They are a uh, charismatic megachurch. It's primarily known for their popular music label, uh, their worship music, and the teachings of the controversial senior pastors Bill and Benny Johnson. Um, and this article talks about some of the strange teachings and doctrines. In fact, I quote here, it says, the Johnsons are frequently criticized for their teachings, which often veers from the suspect to the outright heretical. The wife, Benny Johnson, teaches some very peculiar unorthodox, unorthodox views of angelology, about angels, such as there are different kinds of angels, um, messenger angels, healing angels, fiery angels, fallen asleep angels, fallen asleep angels, um, who she has written, these fallen asleep angels, she says, I think they have been bored for a long time and are ready to be put to work. So they have a school of supernatural ministry where you can be taught how to wake up these angels, and they will work with you in ministry. Um, she claims that God told her to go to the chapel one day and yell out, wakey, wakey. Well, that sounds like the Book of Romans to me. This is, and, and people listen to this and they buy it. You yell out, wakey, wakey. This isn't a cartoon. These people are serious, and there are a lot of people who follow them. And she says, I did that. Nothing happened for five minutes. Um, so the student turned around to cross the road to go over to a shop. As she turned around, she felt the ground begin to shake and heard this huge yawn. So actually, she had said to a student to go do this. She looked back at the chapel, and a huge angel stepped out. All she could see were his feet because he was that large. Uh, she asked him who he was, and he turned to her and said, I'm the angel from the 1904 revival, and you just woke me up. Are you guys there? I mean, this is nuts. Yeah, it's, it's a bedtime story that you wouldn't even want to tell. The, the lunacy of this, they, um, they have a doctrine of, of grave sucking, where those who have died, who were saints, who were used by the Lord, you can lay prone on their graves and suck in the anointing. Now, now, they have denied this, but it is clarified in a book that has been written. Um, there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people who listen to the teachings of this church. 
Thousands upon thousands. They're featured on TBN. Just be aware. Now, that's extreme. I mentioned to you that, and, and thank the Lord for this, that great preachers of the past like Ray Stedman, you can get all of his sermons for 30 years from Peninsula Bible Church online. Uh, S. Lewis Johnson, who was at Believer's Chapel in Dallas. And these were great men of God who were great preachers and great scholars. S. Lewis Johnson, in his section on 2 Peter, on this section in particular, tells a story, and this was from about 40 years ago. He was talking about a um, debate going on in the Episcopalian church about whether or not women could be ordained as elders, whether or not they could preach. And one of the higher-ups said, I'll debate anybody on this subject as long as they don't quote the Bible. (laughs) Now, here's where we are today, 40 years later, in evangelical churches on that subject, And the scriptures have been clear, and it's been understood for 2,000 years. Let's go back to number five. False people, uh, false prophets were never saved. False prophets were never saved. Yeah, they were never saved. And the problem is they look like real sheep, but they're not, according to Jesus. They're wolves. Let's take a look real quick here at verses uh, verse 20. For after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, by the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled with them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them to have not known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn away from the holy command and hand it on to them. It has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit. A sow, after washing, returns to wallowing in the mire. In the Old Testament, dogs and sows were unclean. Um, These people are unclean. um, It's important to understand what is being said here. And it can be a little confusing because it says, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do they have a knowledge of the gospel? Yes. You say, well, some of them, I mean, they had a conversion. I mean, they prayed to receive Christ. They prayed to receive Christ. That doesn't mean they receive Christ. It is possible to be a professing Christian, but not be a believer. That's what happened in Matthew 7. Many will come, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? Did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do work of power? And I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, they... They wouldn't be doing that if they weren't in the church. They wouldn't be doing that if they didn't believe the gospel or have a recognition of the gospel. These people have full knowledge of the gospel. 
but it is a superficial conversion and it is a temporary conversion that is external and not internal in the heart. Let's, let's, go to, uh, let's go to Hebrews. There's a passage in Hebrews that is somewhat disturbing. And it can throw you off and it can begin to worry you if you're really a Christian and if you're really saved. Hebrews chapter 6. And you know, when you read, you got to read in context. And when you read certain passages, you want to read the immediate, any passage, you want to read the immediate context. If you read a passage and it doesn't make sense to you, back up and get the context. And then back up and then go a little bit forward and get the setting. And, and for some passages, you got to back up to the very beginning and you got to read the entire book or it doesn't make sense. These were letters that were written that had context. So in Hebrews 6, verse 4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified themselves the Son of God, and put him in open shame. It looks like someone who has genuinely received Christ can fall away and never come back in. But that's not what this is saying. This is not talking about true believers. This is talking about false believers. So, think for a minute. S. Lewis Johnson talked about this. Old Testament Israel and the church in the New Testament are always a mixed multitude. Jesus talked about the parable of the wheat and the tares. Yeah. So you got the, you got the good grain and then you got the, you got the weeds. And well, do we separate them all? He said, don't worry about that. It's all gonna be done at the end of the age. What he's saying is there are false believers. Just as there are false teachers, there are false believers. And he knows, he knows who's in what camp. Even in the Old Testament, stop and think about this for a minute. So Moses leads them out of bondage in Egypt. God does 10 miracles. Pharaoh finally relents. Then God opens up the Red Sea. They're gonna go into the promised land. And then as they're going into the promised land in Numbers 13, the Lord tells Moses, I want you to pick, I want you to do a reconnaissance mission of the promised land. So in Numbers 13, I want you to pick 12 men, one from each tribe, each man a leader. So Moses, pick your best guy from each tribe. Spiritual leaders. They go in, they do the reconnaissance mission. You know the story, they come back. It's a great land, milk and honey. They bring back a thing of grapes. It takes two guys to carry the cluster. And then in Numbers 13, 10 of the 12 say, but there are giants in the land and we can't take these guys. Joshua and Moses say, Joshua and Caleb say, thank you. Of course we can take them. God will fight for us. Look at, we just, God just did 11 things for us. He did 10 miracles in Egypt. He opens up the Red Sea, wipes out Pharaoh's army. We cross on dry land. There was no mud on our sandals. 
And you're saying that God can't take these Canaanite guys, these giants? But the unbelief of the 10. What's the story on the 10? How come we still name our kids Joshua and Caleb? Nobody in this room can name one of the other 10. You know why? They were unbelievers. They were mixed, even in the leadership. They demoralized the people. And God wiped all 10 of them out. They were not believers. They were false prophets. They were false leaders. They did not trust the living God. Did they know of him? Had they seen the works? Had they tasted of the Holy Spirit and his power? Yes. Did they trust him? No. It was all external, no internal. So in Hebrews 6, and, and, then, and then also in Old Testament Israel, as they were in, they had, to, uh, they had to wait for 40 years to go into the promised land, and they had to depend upon the Lord for water and for food and manna and all that stuff. These people grumbled. And God said he, he regretted even, even making these people. They were just a constant irritation to Moses. Why is that? Because many of them were unbelievers. Even though they saw the power of God, they saw the glory of God. They weren't true believers. It's a mixed multitude. It's wheat and tares. So when he says in Hebrews 6 about those who have tasted and been enlightened, uh, tasted the heavenly gift, uh, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. They never repented in the first place. If you call up and want to renew a, a, a subscription and you've never subscribed in the first place, you're going to have a hard time renewing a subscription. Are you not? In fact, you say, I'd like to renew my, my subscription. Well, I don't see you on the list. I've never subscribed. Well, then we can't renew you. Now, you can subscribe, but we can't renew you. If you've never subscribed, you can't be renewed. If you've never believed, you can't be renewed. You can't repent if you've never repented the first time. They're unbelievers. The reason, and this is where you read the whole book, and if you read the previous chapters, you're going to see he's talking about the unbelievers in Old Testament Israel who never believed and trusted in their hearts. Look at uh, Hebrews 4, verse 2. For indeed we had, for indeed we have had the good news preached to us, just as they also, those Old Testament believers, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Go down to verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall though following the same example, through following the same example of disobedience. They never obeyed in their heart. It was superficial, it was temporary, but they never trusted God from their heart. If you, Romans 10, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. 
But see, there was no heart. There was no internal. It was superficial. It was temporary. There's great assurance of salvation for true believers. But not everyone's a sheep. We've got wolves. Let me wrap up. And once again, this is from the Gospel Coalition. Joe Carter, who is a researcher and uh, an elder in his church and works with Gospel Coalition. He's written an article called Beware of Broken Wolves. Beware of Broken Wolves. And he's talking about the fact there's always been wolves and sheep. But he's talking about where we are today in our culture. And he says this. This is very good. He says, the values of the evangelical community in America today are diverse. So it's not surprising that we have a broad diversity in the species of wolves we encounter in our own age. Health and wealth are very precious to us, so some wolves take the form of preachers selling a prosperity gospel. God always wants you healthy. God always wants you well. There's no suffering. Okay, that's not the true gospel. We also seek to change the world for the better, so some wolves take the guises of social justice or family value advocates, and that because their emphasis. Um, Those can be good things, but they don't replace the gospel. He goes on and he says, there is a particular nasty breed that often goes unnoticed, a type that we might call the broken wolf. These are the false teachers who use their own authenticity, pain, and brokenness to attract believers who are also suffering and broken, and then using their brokenness to lead the sheep to turn away from God's word and embrace it. They blend into the flock because Christians are not and should not be suspicious of broken people. They appear in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, as Jesus said in Matthew 7. So you see how subtle this is? They're legitimately broken. They've been hurt. But they take their hurt and their authenticity, and they use it to turn people away from the truth of Christ. And then he makes three points. Number one, broken wolves are authentic. The majority of the broken wolves you'll encounter are truly broken people. They have suffered real pain and hurt, sometimes even at the hands of the church. They are the type of people we should naturally rush to comfort and protect, for they need love and refuge. But what separates broken wolves from broken sheep is the former believe their brokenness provides them, like the Gnostics of the previous eras, with secret knowledge, such as fresh insights into the human condition, because they can see more clearly than those who are the average hypocritical churchgoer. They reinterpret scripture, discarding the musty old understandings of previous generations of Christians for interpretations that just so happen to align with the latest preferences for the secular culture. So therefore, you can be a a person raised in the church who deals with same-sex attraction and that's been difficult for you for whatever reason, they will tell you, that's fine. That's fine. You can be in a same-sex relationship, and God's fine with it, and God's okay with it. That's absolutely contrary to Scripture. But they're very authentic, and they reach out and touch a nerve in the lives of other people that are broken, but they lead them away from truth. 
And this happens to families. This happens in all kinds of families, and it's going to come to a family near you because it's everywhere. And there's going to be divisions in the family. And this is, this is very real, and it's very tense. So what do you do when someone knows the truth, and they were raised in the truth, but they depart from the truth, but they want the family to accept them as though nothing has changed? And they want to be accepted with their partner. Well, the problem is we can't do that because we believe the scriptures and we can't ignore this and we love you too much to ignore it. We love you and you're welcome here anytime. But you come by yourself. We have little children and we're not going to expose them to this. And you should understand that. And you should not be morally outraged at our position. You should be morally outraged at what's happened in your own heart. We love you. We're praying for you. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There are consequences to decisions. And you made a, con and you made a decision. And we do love you and we're praying for you. You come anytime, alone. Now, that's going to create some conflict. That's going to create some uh, pushback. That's going to create some division in families. And some of you are experiencing it. It's pretty common these days. Number two, Carter says, broken wolves are beyond criticism. Your parents probably taught you from an early age not to harm the already hurting. We therefore hesitate to criticize the broken, even if we recognize them as false teachers. No Christian likes to be considered a bully. And the harsh reality is, if you call out a broken wolf, you will be called a bully. This is inevitable, especially if you're a man warning the flock against a broken wolf who is a woman. Now we're getting really, this is really thin ice. And this has just happened in the last week or two, where a pastor, solid in the scriptures, kind of brought to light and called out a woman teacher who is going off a different direction and I've seen a lot of responses to what he said. He's been highly criticized. She's simply saying it's okay for me to preach in a church on Sunday mornings. Uh, the scripture clearly teaches against that. Now, is that popular in our culture to take that stand? That women are not to be elders and not to preach? No. Now, did people have a problem with it 40 years ago? No. But see, things change. And there's a lot of people in the church, and I've been reading criticisms towards him from those in the church. And the criticisms are that, um, that he's a male, and that he's a white male, 
And as he alluded to, there are some in this denomination who have decided that if they do another Bible translation, they've got to have minorities represented. And as he said, why? I thought the purpose of translating the Bible was that one was an expert in Greek and Hebrew. That has nothing to do with the color of somebody's skin. We need people that know these languages so that we can interpret the scriptures correctly. But see, this stuff is seeping into the church. Elders are called to protect the flock. One other thing, he finishes that point too by saying the brokenness of broken wolves often acts as a shield that protects them from any legitimate criticism because we fear being viewed as harsh or unloving towards women. Now see, but what I just said, I mean, that could happen. So be it. Number three, broken wolves are appealing. Um, the gospel tells broken-hearted sinners to repent, but the broken wolf says, don't worry, God is not so old-fashioned that he still thinks that behavior is a sin. The Bible says to believe in Jesus is to be justified. The broken wolf says you are justified in believing in yourself. The gospel says to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The broken wolf says Jesus doesn't want to rule over you as king. He only wants to be your non-judgmental friend. That's not the gospel. We're living in interesting days, aren't we? And it got tense in here real quick. Because when you put these things out there, we all feel it. But these are the days that we're living in. This is why Second Peter is so relevant to us. So what do we need as Christian men? White, black, brown. How's the old song go? Red and yellow, black and white, we are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the children and Jesus loves the men. <laughs> he loves us all. And so what's our job as leaders? Our job is to stay true to Christ and to stay true to the scripture and humbly and lovingly and as kindly as we can speak the truth in love. But we speak the truth and we tell the truth. It's a tough line to walk and that's why we need his wisdom. Let's pray. So Father, we ask for wisdom. We humbly come to you and ask in each situation that each guy is dealing with in this room that you would give us the mind of Christ. You would, uh, you would give us a heart to seek you and to pray what David prayed at the end of Psalm 39. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any anxious thought in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. We want to be your vessels. We want to be used. We want to lead with love and with integrity. And we want to lead in obedience to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the head of the church. Give us wisdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.